and welcome to NHASCD Spotlight. It's our regular podcast from the New Hampshire Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. My name is Bill Carosa, co-executive director of NHASCD. Before I introduce our great guest today, I want to remind our listeners of some upcoming conferences coming up on March 8th. That's real soon. Uh, seven success factors for great instructional coaching with Mr. Jim Knight. Uh, Jim has spent, as you know, we've talked about it, more than two decades studying professional learning effective teaching and instructional coaching. We're doing this in conjunction with the uh, New Hampshire Association of School Principals, and we're happy to be working with them uh, again next year. We're bringing in um, uh, Peter DeWitt in October, so we'll talk more about that when we get closer. That's next school year, but it'll be here like tomorrow. Jim Knight clearly is Mr. Instructional Coaching, so if you get a chance, we still have space. Uh, Just sign up at nhacd.org. Uh, On March 31st, we have the Symposium of Women Educational Leaders. This is a conference we're doing in association with like five different professional organizations in New Hampshire. And again, sign up uh, at our website for that. As I mentioned, Peter DeWitt's coming in October, a different date in October. Steve Ventura is coming. uh, So we're real excited about that. Uh, As I record this, we don't quite have the the John Hattie conference done yet. That's coming up in a couple days. But as you're hearing this, uh, we are complete with that. So I want to thank Corwin for what I'm sure is, was great New Hampshire Visible Learning Plus Institute with John, uh, John Almerode and Kirsten Barbie. And again, thanks to Corwin. They're a great uh, partner with us. So today we have someone who I have known of for, well, a decade anyway, uh, John Bergman. He's one of the pioneers of the flipped class movement and it gained prominence throughout the world. Actually, I Somewhere back in 1984, thank God for Wikipedia, John, uh, the concept was floating out there. But like, I don't know, like uh, Grant and Jay with UBD or some other things, it's not who comes up with the idea first. It's about who brings it to the field, brings it to teachers. Uh, John is the author of 10 books, including the class, uh, including the book, Flip Your Classroom from 2012. His latest book, we're proud to say, is on ASCD. It's the Mastery Learning Handbook, a competency-based approach to student achievement. Uh, John is a very popular YouTube channeler, a YouTuber with more than 5 million views. He's an award-winning teacher and consultant. He has won the Presidential Award Excellence for Math and Science Teaching. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but uh, John and his wife make their home in Houston, Texas. They have three grown children, as I do, by the way. And uh, he's back in the classroom because as I'm looking at him right now, it is a total science classroom that he's in right now. And it's a PD day. Uh, in his school in Houston. So, uh, John, thank you for taking time before your your PD session here uh, in about 45 minutes. It's great to be with you. Thanks. And yeah, love ASCD. And hey, Jim Knight, you can't, you, you guys got to go to that thing. That's awesome. He's he's amazing. Yeah, no, we love John and we're, we're just blessed to have him. And, and I really think, and this is a little bit of self-promotion, but through the years I've been involved in New Hampshire ASCD for really two decades. And just the ASCD moniker is as hard as, you know, PD and just the publishers and, and professional organizations have had. Uh, it still gets people, it gets us in the door, so to speak, with a lot of people, including including you, John. So so thank you for for saying yes uh, to my uh, my offer to, to podcast. So I found a quote, read a little bit of your uh, stuff. And as I mentioned to you before, um, in my work at New England College, I, I taught, you know, a curriculum and instruction course, always brought up the flip classroom, flip learning and, and brought up your name. Back uh, in one of your publications, you say that 2021 and the years following, including now, will be marked as a time period that fundamentally changed how we teach. And you go on to say that no longer are we going to waste our class time with simple information transfer. 
Uh, and then you really, you pretty much define a flipped learning. Now, now that you're back in the classroom, is that true? Has, has education fundamentally changed uh, how we teach? I wish that I, I wrote that, I think, kind of in the middle of the pandemic. And I think it hasn't happened as much as I hoped. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it, I thought that we would really move beyond the simple information transfer happening in everyday classrooms. But as we've emerged from the pandemic or are emerging, I guess, however you want to think about it, I feel like we still have gone back to the old true. They're not true, actually, but the old things, yeah. old ways more than I, I, I wish we hoped. That said, there has been huge movement, I think. I mean, flip learning exploded in the pandemic um, and people have really fundamentally rethought how they teach a lot more than it, it has accelerated the process. And I think that's positive, but it hasn't been as, as much as I hoped. What is that inertia that we face all the time in education to, you know, move beyond whatever technique you want to talk about, you know, the, the rows and teacher directed learning and where does that come from? Do you think? And it doesn't seem to exist in business as much. I know it's, it's the old familiar, what people were used to. And I think, you know, it's like, going to comfort food or something like that. You went back <laughs> to, I think, I think I wonder if that was more the, the ineptus for where they were at. And I, the other thing I think that we must certainly acknowledge is the crazy level of burnout and struggle that teachers faced in the last few years. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not like sitting here blaming them and saying, you should have done this. You should have done that because I know it's been so, so hard. I mean, I, I went back to the classroom in 2019. And so I got to experience pandemic teaching as a teacher again and so I, I, I've lived this life and watched my peers really struggle. I've struggled. Uh, and so it's also been really hard. So I'm not, I still think we need to move beyond that. We have to. And I think we will. It's just a slower process than I hope for, I guess. Yeah. I'd like to dig into the flip learning concept a little bit. In things I've read, at times you you seem to say we're moving away from flip learning or we, you know, we'll talk about mastery teaching in a bit and maybe that's the next stage. But obviously it is who you are, the great concept that, that you came up with. Talk about back in I think, probably 2007-ish. Where did this come from? Where did the idea come from? And and tell us a little story of that. But like you said, the really the idea of flip learning has been around for longer than um, when Aaron Sams and I um, thought we came up with the idea. There have been people before us. We didn't know about it. So it, it really started in a conversation. And so we I had discovered some software that had would record, record our lectures. And so we had a problem. Our problem at our small rural school in high school in Colorado was that a lot of students would leave early, like around noon, because we were rural. And so kids had to get a bus to go to a basketball tournament or football game. And so all, I mean, all the time, we'd have no afternoon classes or we'd have not know that we still have afternoon class, but half the kids would be gone. And so we started to record our lectures in the morning classes, and then our kids could watch the videos afterwards. And then our curriculum director, she came down and she said, you know, this is awesome that you guys are recording your lectures. We love it. But uh, she says, in fact, my daughter, who's attending university, has her professor record your lectures and she loves it. And then this is what changed the whole world for us. She said this. And it was kind of weird what she said. She said, my daughter loves it because she doesn't have to go to class anymore. And later that day, Aaron and I said, that's a weird conversation. That was weird. And then we said, what's the value of class time if you don't have to go to class? But hey, we have these videos. What if we pre-recorded? And then, you know, we said, oh, wow, that's what we'll do. And so that's it all started for us. Um, we thought we'd invented the idea. We didn't. Um, there's actually some a really significant paper in 1998 by um, Platt. 
Dr. Platt, P-L-A-T-T, I forget first name right now. But anyways, uh, from University of Ohio or University of something in Ohio, Miami, University of Miami, Ohio, I think is where it was. And uh, he, he was the first, I think, to really write about it. But we didn't know about that when we were first playing around with this idea. And so that's where it all started, I guess. Uh, and it's grown, obviously, since then. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. How does it, it, it go into your concept and in your latest book? I, I can't remember if I mentioned it or not. I probably didn't. It's uh, I did, the Mastery Learning Handbook. How does it relate to the work you're doing with that? Is it sort of the next step, the next iteration? Well, even in our first book, Flip Your Classroom, which, by the way, we are uh, about to publish a new edition of. I mean, lots of new content. I've got nice. queries in my inbox right now from the publisher, which, by the way, is being republished or re rewritten right now. And a new edition coming out maybe this summer, I think, uh, from our, nice. our publisher, Bisty. So uh, we talked about that in that first book, The Mastery Model. And so like for this, uh, like three chapters, we talked about flipped mastery model, we called it. Uh, and as I came back to the classroom, I really said, I really want to focus on mastery learning. So I came, when I came to the school, I said, I'm going to do mastery learning and that's what I've been doing. And I've been doing since, you know, like 2019. And, but there's been teachers who read that first book, flip your classroom, and they began to just use the mastery model significantly. And so it really continued to grow while I was out in the world of consulting and doing that, that world. But uh, so I really wanted to make that a reality. So, you know, I have a podcast making mastery a reality one day at a time where I talk about how I make mistakes and how I, uh, all the mistakes I make and what I'm learning. Um, and out of that, and uh, I wrote this book and uh, I wrote the book because I felt like people really need to know how to do it. So I wanted people to understand the specifics of step-by-step -step how to do mastery and made it super practical. But I talked to like 30, 40 people and interviewed them um, about how they were doing it because they took the work that Aaron and I did early on and they expanded it and made it better. And so I learned so much by talking to them. It's totally changed my own practice by writing that book and morally by talking to these people who had taken our model that we'd sort of in a you know nutshell started in that first book and took it way beyond what I would have ever thought. So uh, yeah, I, I, another thing I'd say about mastery is I really think it's the answer for the, the issues we're facing right now. Um, as I've talked to people around the world, uh, the biggest struggle I think that teachers are facing, or certainly one of the biggest struggles, is that we, we have students, especially when they come back from the pandemic, who are coming to our classes of such varied ability levels. That was true before the pandemic, let's be honest. But now the gaps between your student who's, who, who went through the pandemic well and the student and learned well through that process and the student who didn't is even bigger. And so the concept of mastery, of course, is that when a student, students can move through the content at a flexible pace, and when they move through a flexible pace, then you, I, it's, it's much more asynchronous. So here in my classroom, you, you guys can't see it, but in my classroom, they, they're going to work in pods and different students are at different places in the content. And uh, flipped makes this, a, makes this happen. Without flipped, I can't make it happen because I need to still time shift me and direct instruction. I still believe in lecture. Um, people think that I, I, but I haven't ever lectured. Okay, since 2007, I haven't lectured in class. So I don't lecture, but I do lecture, but I lecture on cheesy videos, right, that I make. Mm -hmm. So but that time shifts me. And when I'm time shifted, then the students now can move through the content at flexible paces. So if we get a granular back to the, the flip learning uh, piece, we're kind of floating between both yeah. concepts. Are you, you're putting content on, I don't know, I'm guessing Google maybe, you know, or, or YouTube or whatever. It's their homework ex expectation to 
essentially learn the content the night before so that the following day you can follow up with some project-based learning, you know, actually applying the information that that you That's went over the idea. night before. The big idea of Flipped is that you do the easy stuff, the information transfer in what we call the independent space. Uh, and then you do the hard stuff in the group space during class time. You know, during COVID, that was in a Zoom room, but now it's in a physical classroom, right? And so that's the big idea. And it actually just makes sense if you think about it. Where does a student need help on the hard stuff? So if you think of Bloom's taxonomy, right? right. The lower levels, knowledge, and understanding, they can get introduced to the concept at home and then, uh, or outside of class. And then when they're in the class, they can apply it, they can analyze it, they can analyze it, apply it, all those things, the higher Bloom things. They can do that in class. And then when they get stuck, who's there? Me, the teacher, I'm the real expert. If they're right. stuck at home, they got no one to help them, especially I teach chemistry and physics. I remember high school chemistry and physics is a hard class. <laughs> Two of the like, hardest. Yeah. Lucky you. So when you get back into the mastery learning uh, concept, you, you mentioned, and it's a little bit of RTI sort of is what you're saying. The remediation that happens in the classroom, given that teachers workloads are, are pretty high anyway, and perhaps higher after the pandemic, or at least the, the social emotional issues are higher how how is that managed um when you have and of course it's always been the way it's been right there's always been 100 different well 25 different levels in a classroom how how is that managed within the mastery learning framework That's and that was the hard question I mean, you, you know actually i think if you look back at the history of mastery learning just a little quick history is that you go back and benjamin bloom uh, he actually was the one of the big proponents of mastery learning in the say 1980s ish, um, and he, he said mastery learning is the way to go. But logistically, it was almost a nightmare. How do you do it? So two things: if you have any direct instruction component, how do you time shift that? Okay, so if you think about it, obviously the flip learning piece has time shifted that because if I have to lecture, all right, and introduce some new concepts, if I have to do it to the whole class and kids are all on a different page of the curriculum, what do you do? Bing, hello make these cheesy videos or have them do some readings. It's not always the videos. I have readings too. The students do as pre-learning. That's solved by technology, really. It's all posted on YouTube and places like that. Um, and the other question obviously is then assessments is when a kid takes a test in a mastery classroom and what happens if they don't pass? Okay, well, they have to retake the test, right? They have to demonstrate mastery, some, whatever your measure. It's not always a, a physical you know, test like you normally think of it. Uh, my students next week are going to be doing a project to prove mastery. It's a, chem a chemistry reactions. They have to, like, I'm going to give them chemicals. They've got to do some work, on, you know, whatever. So it's all, it's more of an alternative assessment. But there's a mastery component, but all of this is kind of time shifted. And the logistics are hard. Let me say it, but it, it's workable. And I, 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 without going into great, great detail, because the book is like, here are the step-by-step -step ways to make this a reality. I mean, I teach six classes every day, like you do. I've got full classes. Uh, it, it works. And it's not just working here in my science classroom, which, by the way, you're free to come and visit. Love uh, to. Uh, yeah, I mean, and you, your your audience too. I, I'm, I'm having uh, regular uh, groups of people who will come occasionally to come visit and just spend nice. some time meeting my kids, right, and talk to me and whatever, see how it actually works. But it, it does work, and I, I don't know. I don't take papers home to grade. I grade by, for example, so that that's a huge like time saver for me. So I'm just yeah. one little 
I talk about how, how to stop taking papers from the grade. And it's just these conversations. So like yesterday doing these, these uh, they are working on writing out chemical reactions. It's one of the hardest things our students do. It's really the hardest unit of the year. And my students are struggling. One girl told me yesterday, she said, this is hard. I said, I know, I'm sorry. So right, right. but it is, what it is, it's one of the harder things and she's struggling. But then once she finally got it, she had the big aha moment. And then I said, all right, show me how I'm going to watch you do this without my help. Um, so I gave her kind of a difficult problem and she got it, but I graded. I said, you have mastered this concept. You can now demonstrate mastery. You're ready to move on, move on to the next step. So it's, it's, I'm grading by these little conversations that I keep track on a little like uh, 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 spreadsheet that I walk around with the room. So, yeah. My own daughter's a teacher. I work with teachers every day in different ways. What I'm hearing from teachers is not that they're not paid enough, although we all like to get paid more, right? It's not necessarily even the respect that society gives them. A little bit is some of the social issues we're dealing with. But in many cases, teachers, especially secondary teachers, upper level may not even have that issue. A lot of it is the workload. And so I don't know if your book addresses this because I didn't read the whole book, to be honest, but I read part of it. If it addresses just that idea of how do we lessen, like you mentioned, the homework load that would just making the job closer to 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week, maybe, right. Would make everything better. It does mastery learning help that a little bit, your approach. In terms of your time commitment, I, I would argue that the first year as you're setting this up is going to be a high time commitment. But the other thing that's nice too, about a shift to a mastery approach is that you, you already have assessments. You already have, activities, right? I mean, my kids will do experiments and they'll do different things that are active learning things and projects. And I mean, I've had those before. So when I made the switch to mastery, this is now back in the Aaron 2007, eight, nine, whatever years, um, all we did is we took the same assignments that we had and we just, in that case, more moved to a flipped approach, eventually to a mastery approach. It's really rethinking. The bigger issue more is to rethink how you're going to do it. But is there a time as you make the shift? Yeah. So I guess here's my argument or my, my, it's going to take you a year of significant change. And then the next year, it'll be a lot easier. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, then I, I, I don't work more than 50 hours a week at school. I mean, great. yeah. I mean, I, I, I work very hard when I'm here and then I'm done. So, yeah. And that's the way it's supposed to be, right? It's not supposed to be day and night. I mean, I, I once used the analogy with parents about teaching, especially those that say, oh, they get summers off. In many ways, it's it's sort of like the merchant marine. I had a parent who was a merchant mariner, and he worked six months away from the family totally, 24-7, and then he was home six months. It's almost like that. I mean, you September to June, you know, it's almost like you're just, that's all you do. And that, you know, for a mom or dad that's raising kids or whatever, that's just, it's crazy. So we've got to find a, a better model, I think, um, especially now post-pandemic partly to save the profession because people aren't going into teaching or they're, they're leaving. And um, I don't have the answers and we can't solve all those problems, but I do think it's a, I hate to use the word existential, but to some, yeah, I, some, some extent it is. I'm worried about our, our, our profession. A lot of yeah. people are leaving. I'm seeing it here um, both in my consulting practice and then just teachers that I know either online and any person. And some are just saying, I'm done. I, I yeah. give up. I it's, I can't. And many of them are like, I can make, double the money. I know one guy made double the money leaving teaching. He's got enough skills, math teacher. And he 
He's, you know, pure interest in oil and natural gas, pulled him away for, uh, he's got some pretty, you know, pretty strong skills. So sure. Gone. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, we'll solve that in our next podcast. We'll yeah. solve that problem. Back to your your book a little bit. The second half of the title of your of your latest book is about a competency based. New Hampshire is, I think, one of the leaders in the competency based movement. Our Department of Ed, our teachers. It it's something that's it's still growing here. A good friend of mine did his uh, dissertation on the whole issue. Uh, explain in your way, in the mastery learning way, what you mean by competency based. Honestly, I don't know, see that I see much difference between mastery and competency-based learning. I, I think a better term is mastery. This is just a personal preference, and I talk about this this conundrum in the book. Um, but with the, we need a list of things that I want students to master or to become competent in. I, I think that's basically what it is. And so I sit down at the beginning of every unit, and I identify the seven key, let's say seven, I don't know whatever it is, seven key learning objectives uh, that I have for that class or seven key competencies. And then I have to make a determination. I do a backwards design approach. Then I say, all right, what will prove to me that they've mastered competency one, two, three, four, five, et cetera. And then um, what activities will get them the best to that level of mastery and boom, let them go. And then I am assessing those masteries, usually by the way, just with conversation we talked about earlier i'll have a brief conversation and say show me that you know this prove to me that you know this or that you've mastered this or you've reached some level of competency and it's not a very complex thing it's a simple process i know when a kid has achieved mastery again i've sat down and thought about what that looks like ahead of time um and again i mean you teachers who are out there listening to this you you know what mastery of a particular thing that you teach is if you're teaching them how to write something you're an english teacher a particular thing or how to how, how they should use metaphors or similes in a paragraph you know when that's done that they've mastered that concept right i mean i, I don't know what that looks like i'm not an english teacher but you do and so what does that look like you are you've known this for a long time what that looks like the question is and how do you design it so it's more of a mastery system as opposed to you know trying to teach all the kids and hope they get it kind of a thing how does your approach to mastery learning and, and the flip learning concept, how does that relate uh, to the elementary world? Well, it's being done in the elementary classrooms all over the world. In fact, I think the best case study, I encourage you to grab this guy for a podcast. He's amazing. Um, I highlight them in the book. It's Ashurst Primary School in Ashurst, New Zealand. Um, uh, it's a kind of sheep country and military bases are around this place. It's north of Wellington. Um, New Zealand, and they've gone to a full-on flip mastery approach for the entire primary school, you know, K through seven. I think it's seven because it's a different system than our American system, whatever. So they have done this, and they are working very effectively with doing mastery. Again, what do they do? It's no different than what I am doing. They sat down, all the third grade teachers sat down and said, all right, in math or in history or whatever they're teaching, what are the key things we want students to learn, like learning targets, I think is what they call them. It's a different name than objectives, same thing. And then they design activities. They have their flips, their flips are their, their instructional videos. That's what they call them, the flips. The kids will have instructional videos and they're all linked in a Google, they use a Google doc kind of global system. And they've got different groups. They've got the red group, the green group and the purple group, or I, I think they give them uh, Maori names actually. Um, Mari is the uh, indigenous uh, people group in uh, New Zealand. And they do, uh, anyways, they've got these groups as kids are working through different stages of mastery and 
proving different levels of mastery. I think they've got like three levels. And so in, in any given room, I think what you'll see is three different groups working on different things. Um, so you don't want every kid to be on exactly their own learning path, by the way, that's logistically a disaster. I don't, I can't have that happen. I have them in sort of pods, which are, which change each day, you know? So anyways, that's a huge logistical issue in mastery is how, how do you keep them ish together so that you don't have a logistical nightmare where I have, you know, 28 paths in the same room. That's, that's, that's not workable. Right. Um, I can have five paths in a room or two or, or three or yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I'm going to address this, but I'm, I'm just thinking about yesterday. So this very difficult topic that my students are studying right now. Um, I walked around the room and tried to find the five students, let's say. And I said, who's the the ones who are furthest behind? And, um, and they were all at one stage. Um, they're working on objective four and the more advanced students were on five and six. And so I said, I found all the fours, if you will, who are working on clear objective number four and they became an instant group. I said, I, I walked around the room as I do in triage at the beginning. And I said, okay, who, who, and I said, all right, boom, you six are a group, meet me at the board. And if you could, it's still on the board. If you were to look at the camera on the board, is them work collaboratively working right. together on different whiteboards in the room, um, working on that. But I had five kids up at the board working on that. I went and helped some other kids. I gave them instructions. I came back and boom, after 15 minutes, I think they, they finally got it. The difficult concept. Let's talk about you. Somewhere in the 2000s, well, actually, you've been teaching since the 80s, right? Ish, not to give away your age, but I think we're fairly, yeah. right. we're fairly, I got a couple of years on you. At some point, you left uh, teaching, uh, you wrote this book in 2012. Flip learning just exploded. The concept, you know, probably beyond anything you had ever thought would ever happen, right? Um, and so for a period of time until 2019, you were a consultant. You did TED Talks. You're still on the TED Advisory Board. You kept on writing books. You wrote flip learning books for different subject areas. Uh, your name was pretty well known. Um, you were an edgy celebrity, if we can use that term. Uh, every field has its celebrities. And then somehow you decided, just in time for the pandemic, by the way, to go back to uh, to teaching. Talk about that, that transition, uh, why you left something that... Well, probably financially was doing well. Uh, it was a different sort of life at times, exciting. You probably gained some cred going back to the classroom in some ways too, but what led you to that? I, I guess I was getting a little disillusioned with the travel the world and you know talk to people on the stage. And I actually wondered to some degree if that was making as big a difference. And it, it did. I mean, I even got a, a communication the other day, just somebody just thinking how it changed her life. And she came yeah. to a one and done conference and how everything changed for her. I just got that a couple of days ago. It was really cool. But um, I also realized that I'm standing on stage, that all the stories I'm telling are old. Uh, <laughs> I can't talk about my students anymore. Um, I have to talk about somebody else's students, which is fine. And I'm not bemoaning people who, you know, stay in the consulting world for a long time. They, there's a lot of value to that. They can really give themselves to that. But it was actually in 20, the beginning of 2019, I'd say January, February, whatever. My wife and I said, let's go on a retreat. We went to Sedona, Arizona, and we disconnected from everything and said, what's next? We were just feeling some things for And we said, and our kids are grown. Um, uh, we were living in Chicago area. My daughter told me, she said, who's 
teacher herself. She said, mom, dad, why do you still live in Illinois? Um, <laughs> she said, good question. And we thought we were staying because she lives in Wisconsin. And I don't know. We just felt like during that, that two weeks, we said it's, it's time. And I think it's, it's, I need to go back to teaching. And so then we started looking. And so I, I guess that was the, the process. Little did we know that 2019 would be the beginning of, you know, 2020 and all that. And, uh, I came back in the classroom. I, uh, the school, I'd done consulting at this school here. They had hired me to be a consultant, to work with their staff, to introduce flip learning to them. And I had, and when I said, I want to go back to the classroom, I thought of all the schools I've ever worked with, which school did I really think had a great vision, great leadership, um, et cetera. And, unbeknownst to me they were about to have a job opening and <laughs> and long story short here i am so yeah what's it been like going back uh, when you're sort of this extremely well-known person probably everybody in your school if they didn't know your name they knew the term flip learning it's funny just the last few days i've mentioned it to just some people that i was interviewing you and and they may not have known your name but boy they knew what flip learning was what was yeah. that like going back to a a staff that uh, knew of the term but Suddenly you were one of them. Well, they knew of me because I had been their consultant. Good point. <laughs> and so I came in as the edgy celebrity. In fact, I was being interviewed for the job. Um, I said, I know I'm a weird hire. And uh, and I also was cognizant of they might think, what do I do with that sort of celebrity status? So, so I tried not to say anything, but just to be a colleague. Um, and I think, you know, at first it was it was – it was awkward, but then as people got to know me, I hope they realize I'm just a teacher like them. I struggle. Right. I mean, my kids are sometimes they behave badly. I had a kid lighting matches yesterday before yesterday when he wasn't supposed to. And I had to, you know, so I talked to the football coach. He's now become a friend. And, you know, I, I do things like I'm the voice of the Mustangs. So I, at the football games, I'm the PA announcer. I do the basketball games as well. And so, I mean, I try to just be a part of a community and uh, contribute. I mean, there's some things I don't do as much because I've got this other world. I still do some consulting. And so I can't, I'm not, they've asked me to be the swim coach. I'm a, you know, I, 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 in my spare time, I've done triathlons and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm quite capable of doing that, but I, I don't do that. And they respect that. And they see that I, I'm this school. One thing that also attracted me to this school is that they see this as a net plus for the school is that I can add a lot. In fact, I mean, one of the comments that has been made, especially in the pandemic is, you know, um, this is a, a Christian school. And they say, now, if you know, there's a biblical passage that for such a time as this is a very mm -hmm. famous passage in the Bible. And then the people of multiple, because when the pandemic happened, I was able to really help a lot of teachers who were more traditional because, you know, they're remote. They don't even, you know, I was one of the better prepared people, I would argue, for the pandemic than most teachers because of my background and right. I struggled too though but that said I struggled less than a lot of people so yeah I don't know it's been weird but it's been good and now I think I'm just perceived as a colleague you know we go to lunch we joke we do whatever right it's it's right yeah. well it was important for you to embed yourself in, in the community being that it, you know it's a private school in a sense that there's a certain level of community there that doesn't always exist and the fact that you just embedded yourself is a real good thing uh, you mentioned, I can't remember if we hit record or before record, uh, that you have a new edition of Flip Learning coming out because it's been, well, it's the 11th, 11th year anniversary, maybe. I don't know. You should have done yeah. it at 10, probably, right? 
yeah so this has been they actually contacted us about the 10th year and they said hey we need to do this and then now they're finally ready to do it and so ISTE is planning to republish that in june or july this summer sometime it's been fun uh working with aaron again aaron's gone on to become a professor he uh does you know teaches teachers like uh, pre-service teachers um it's just been fun to work with him again uh and reconnect it's been some years since we've really uh, yeah worked in any capacity together so I'm, I'm looking forward i really think some of the additions that we've added are uh super powerful in fact uh, uh we talk about we gave we wrote two case studies of teachers who've been changed since that book actually one was a teacher and one I, we just mentioned was actually asher's this primary school and we talked about how this school was transformed by flipped learning and eventually moved to a mastery learning approach and those are the kind of things that are in the book uh, that are, there's a lot of new stuff. Uh, they've tied it to the ISTE standards. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a really significant update. So we're looking forward to that coming out here this summer. So glad you're publishing it on ISTE. As you may know, ASCD and ISTE have now merged. Uh, our members don't know this too much yet, but um, New Hampshire ASCD and uh, NISTE, New Hampshire's uh, ISTE uh, affiliate are in pretty uh, deep talks about some uh, collaboration. So. Good stuff. What I love about that. Um, I was actually on a call just with uh, with Richard Colotta. Yeah, he, he's the new executive director of both organizations. Yeah, both orgs, and there yeah. was a call for all the uh, ASCD authors, and he was in there. And and what I've always liked about both orgs is that ISTE, I think, early in its early nascent stages, was probably too tech focused. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and not enough pedagogical focused. And ASCD was the opposite. It was all about pedagogy, and I think they neglected tech um to their to their shame early on because they just it's all curriculum and instruction and all which is fine but i in what the way the world has worked is those two things need to merge right. and um, that's what's happened and i think it's a it's a wise move and i think it's going to really help uh kids and teachers everywhere right well you talked about seasons or, or uh you know to everything there is a season i think Part of the arrangement was financial, obviously, because these organizations having a hard time surviving perhaps on their own all the time. So the combination, you know, we're excited about it. I think year one right now uh, is pretty much just getting their financial house in order, figuring out how the two organizations will coexist. There's no pressure on the affiliates or anybody really to do something necessarily, but, you know, they're encouraging some some collaboration. So that's good too. You know, it's funny, I, this could be another half an hour and, and you've got a, a PD session to go to, but uh, it would be great to talk sometime about teachers doing kind of what you're doing, maybe not to their level, but, you know, doing writing in a blog, writing for a publication because I think that's something for me anyway, getting involved with professional organizations or your own publishing, whether it's blogging or writing articles for ed leadership, it really can be a way to to push your career and your your passion for the profession forward a little bit. Well, I would really encourage people to start writing at some level. Uh, <laughs> if I, this is the funny thing, Bill, if I if you had talked to my high school English teacher and she was looking across her classroom <laughs> and asked the question. Which of these kids would write now 11, is it 11, but whatever. Uh, I would have been the last pick on that. I, I was a math and science geek and I didn't like writing and I love writing now. I had no idea that I would love writing. But what I found about the process of writing, whether you get published or not, I don't think that matters as much, um, is that it really clarifies my thinking. I mean, the process of writing this last book was so powerful for me. Um, because it told, I mean, it's everything I've ever 
believed about education, but also informed by all these people. I mean, maybe the most valuable part, it was I spent, let's say, 30 hours talking with 30 different people and recording those sessions on Zoom and picking up brains. I mean, one, one, one idea that I had, I was struggling. So one of the problems with mastery, so kids get to the end of it, of a unit of study and they take a test and I say, they've got to get 80% on the test. And so I was expecting them all to get the same. And I had gave them the same test, but one of the problems, and this is actually research says this about mastery learning. And I, again, I'm summarizing parts of the book. One of the problems with mastery learning is that the, what that evidence says is it especially helps struggling students. So kids, you know, in the lower quartiles, right. But it doesn't seem to help your advanced students as much. And honestly, that's exactly what I found teaching, and I was frustrated. But I talked with three different people, all right, one science teacher, one Finnish researcher, and actually uh, a history teacher, uh, middle school history teacher, high school science teacher, and Finnish researcher. And finally, it all came to me as, as I kind of merged their thoughts. And so actually, when my kids take their summative assessments, they get a choice between the deep level test the clear level test or the basic test. So I've <laughs> identified what are the different levels of mastery, if you will, or competency, if you want. And uh, now the lower level is not low. Okay. So don't, I'm not saying I'm accepting low work, but more than anything else, I'm allowed, I can now write challenging questions for my advanced students because they, they get a, like a grade bonus for taking the hard test and passing it. And so, I mean, this all came together and I, I was struggling with this idea, but by talking to these researchers or these people, one researcher and two practitioners, then I was able to come up with a solution. That's just, it has totally changed everything. And the kids love it. They, it's like, you know, choose your own adventure and it, it works. And, and actually as a note, it's not like it's every unit. So one time a kid will do the deep test and next time we'll do the clear and vice versa. They don't have, it's not a rule that they have to, um, stay at some level they just you know some things are easier and they, they i'm going for it i'm gonna go for the hard one well it, it's great to see the passion you have to to be back in the classroom and it's going to even though you're doing less writing probably less <laughs> i was gonna say performing although in some to some extent the, the sit and get one and and done sort of thing is like performing but you're just going to be so much better i'm sure at everything you do on the outside of teaching because you'll have those stories i think of doug reeves who worked one day a week in a boston school you just got to be in schools to have any context really if you're going to be a consultant or a speaker it's a different world we live in i mean if i would have stayed in the consultant world full-time um, I would have had to find ways to get in the schools because the whole reality of schools changed right. dramatically, right, in 2020. So, um, but for me, that's not hard because I, I'm in a school, uh, right. week. So, right. uh, which has limited my consulting practice, which is fine. I'm okay with that. I, you yeah. know, I was called to be a teacher, really, and and I I have I've been humbled by the work that 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 I did uh, with Aaron and some of the work I did by myself and with others. And the impact it's had, that's, it's been really cool, but, yeah. and that's really my goal is I, I want to change the world. And I know that at some level I've had the honor to do that. Uh, I still want to see more change that needs to happen, but I feel like at this stage of life, this is where I need to be. Yeah. People have asked me, you know, where do you see yourself? I said, well, in room 229. <laughs> nice. I was going to sort of ask you that too. Is there, will there be a time you'll go back to full-time consulting? Do you think? I don't see that right now. No, I, 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 no, no, no. I mean, I've had people who've approached me on some things and at this stage um, I might work as a consultant in your org organization, but I don't see any reason to leave the classroom. No. 
Yeah. And you still have an opportunity to write regardless. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can write. And sometimes, you know, so I went back to uh, my first year back that in 2019. So I still had a scheduled gig in Australia. So it was in the fall of 2019. So let's say October or something like that. And so I flew to Australia and, and, and it was an event that I had done many, many times that we, we actually had a conference. I just, we don't do these anymore, but they flip con conferences, flip conferences, FlipCon, and I did FlipCon Australia and the, the response I got back and it was the least prepared presentation I'd ever done or keynote I'd ever done. And um, because <laughs> I had crazy busy diving back into the classroom and I went and spoke at this conference and like people kept up and said, and said, John, that's the best keynote you've ever given. And I said, Dude, he said, you're one of us again. Yeah. You see, yeah. and I think, uh, I really feel like I can lead the organizations, or that's an organization, that's not really an organization, lead the movement better from room 229 than I can um, on a plane. Yeah. No, I, you have more depth because of your experience now. Yeah. So John, this has been a lot of fun. I, we, I could do this another hour easily. Um, what are some uh, good ways for people to get a hold of you if, if they want to learn more about what you do? Well, just go to my website, johnbergman.com. And John spelled weird, J-O-N, no H. And Bergman has two N's. So go to johnbergman.com. Uh, there's a podcast there. There's If you want to just ask a question, uh, there's a, you know, ask a question query page or whatever so go there if you want to come visit me i mean seriously if you're if you're in the houston area come come spend you know an afternoon watching my talk to my kids right i had uh three kids three kids three teachers here uh last week and it was really good i mean i just they just i was in a i'm an online chemistry group right for chemistry teachers um and uh, they were lived in houston and they said can we come i said you're in let's go and so feel free that's great John, it is an honor to talk to you after all these years of knowing your work. Thank you. It's been awesome, Bill. Yeah. Hope you have a great day. Good weekend. It's Friday. Yeah, yeah. As we're recording this. Probably not Friday as you're listening to this. It might be, but... So, uh, so thanks so much. Well, to end this up, I want to make sure people remember March 8th is uh, Jim Knight, who has John Bergman's uh, seal of approval. So make sure if you haven't signed up, uh, there's still plenty of room. Uh, Just go to nhascd.org to sign up for... Uh, Jim Knight coming to Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, For more information on our organization and our conference series, just head to our website, as I mentioned, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our mission is to serve as a catalyst for conversation and action to inspire excellence in teaching, learning, and leading. You can contact me at bill at nhasd.org. And again, John, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. It really was. Great. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. So I'm Bill Carosa, co-executive director for NHASCD. We'll see you next time for NHASCD Spotlight. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.